I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. What's up, everybody? It's March 19th, Tuesday, March 19th, 2019. And it's March! It's that time of year. It is March Madness. The games are officially underway. What a miraculous time it is. And everyone is excited for college basketball's culminating tournament. And I, of course, have filled out a bracket. And I will tell it to you, at least certain parts of it, over the next so many minutes. But let's get into March Madness and what's going on because I'm excited. I think everyone's excited. It's bracket season. So here we go. Uh, first of all, selection show went quickly, which was nice. It was great to see all the teams get excited. I'm glad Belmont got in. Shout out to the OVC. Also kind of surprised the Pac-12 got three teams after the sucky year that they had. Um, and also, my one of my relatives or parents' friends, I forgot who, went to St. John's. So shout out to St. John's for getting in the tournament as well. Without further ado, let's take a look at the bracket. Now we're going to start in the East region. This is the region of Duke. And this is the region with Michigan State in as well. Although, after Michigan State won the Big Ten title tournament, um, and they were actually the number, I believe, six overall seed, they should not have gotten Duke. uh, Because... Duke was the number one seed overall, and I think the NCAA should move to the um, to the straight S curve for seeding. Because if, if you don't know how the NCAA seeds, like which side, which region of the bracket teams are in, they first come up with the S curve rankings, which are just rating all of the teams in the tournament from one to sixty-eight. Uh, and if, in a perfect S curve, what they would do is they would start with the first team going into one of the brackets, the first team overall going into one of the brackets. Then you put the second team overall in a different bracket and the third team overall in a different bracket and the fourth team overall in a different bracket. So now the four seeds each, or the four one seeds, are now each in different brackets. Then you take the fifth overall seed and you put them with the fourth overall seed. So in other words, it's kind of like a bracket inside of a bracket, right? The fourth seed team, which is a one, the fourth overall seed, which is a one seed, plays the fifth overall seed, which is a two seed. So the worst one seed plays the best two seed if they all, both made it to the regional final. And that makes sense, right? You want to reward the best overall seed with the weakest two seed. Now that doesn't exactly happen because the NCAA wants to keep these regions of the East, West, South, and Midwest at least a little more than nominal and uh, try to prevent teams from traveling a ton. But, in this case, that resulted in the 4th overall seed and the 8th overall seed, Gonzaga and Michigan, ending up in the same bracket. Uh, Whereas it probably would have made more sense to have Michigan face Duke, because they were the 8th overall seed. And clearly Michigan State beat Michigan three times and probably deserved a better draw than they got. But that's, that's... 
So that's the situation that happened there, but back back to the East region. So the East has Duke, Michigan State in it. And I think Duke is the clear favorite just because Zion, R.J. Barrett, and Cam Reddish, when that team is fully healthy, plus the emergence of Alex O'Connell and Trey Jones has been in there all year, that is the most complete team and the most talented team. Uh, the only flaw, and this is what could really end up biting them, and this is why, you know, my bracket is not really complete yet. I might change it, but this is why I might not pick Duke if I decide not to. They struggle from the three-point line sometimes, and in March Madness, if you have one bad game from the three-point line, you're toast. You don't get a second chance. If you miss a bunch of threes, it's all over. And so that's why Duke might not be the... uh, They are, I think, the betting favorite, but maybe why they shouldn't be uh, in this tournament. Michigan State showed up big time and came up big over the last stretch of the season, beating Michigan three times. Um, And they have a legitimate shot to beat Duke. I mean, any team does. But uh, some other standouts from this region... I don't think LSU is a super strong team, uh, although I haven't watched them a ton this year. Uh, Virginia Tech getting Justin Blackman back is big. One thing I might watch out for uh, in this region of the bracket, UCF has Taco Fall, and if Duke is unable to stop him on defense, the 7-6 player, that could be one of the craziest 9-1 upsets of all time. Uh, And that's something that I think has a... Reasonable-ish shot of happening, although I still have Duke getting past that round. And at the moment, uh, I have Duke beating Michigan State in the regional final uh, as my as my picks. Over on the, I believe it's the, I don't actually know which region is which. I'm going to call this the West region. The region with Virginia in it. Virginia obviously coming off of the losing to a 16 seed a year ago in UMBC, and now they're one seed yet again. They will not lose to a 16 seed yet again. Um, a lot of people are very high on Virginia this year, and for good reason. I mean, this is the best offensive team we've seen out of Virginia in a while, and that was their downfall against UMBC. Um, and their defense is good as as usual, as it usually is. But for whatever reason, I just never have confidence in Virginia. And so, you know what? I I have Virginia out by the Elite Eight. That might not be a wise decision, but that's that's what I have right now. Meanwhile, Tennessee, led by Admiral Schofield, is in the tournament, although they don't have a ton of experience making deep runs. Uh, and so I'm not I'm not super confident in them either. An upset pick could be Oregon, who won the Pac-12 and was very hot heading into, or is very hot heading into the NCAA tournament. Uh, elsewhere, Villanova always sits as a threat at the sixth seed, although they have a very tough draw if the high seeds win out. They'll have to play St. Mary's, who fresh off a WCC victory. Then they'd have to possibly play Purdue, uh, who's a very talented team. And then, of course, Tennessee, who's high-flying. Uh, and ready to go. At the moment, I have Villanova beating Kansas State in the Elite Eight, sending Villanova to the Final Four. That may change. (laughs) 
heading over to what I'm going to call the South region. The region, probably the most stacked region in this tournament. Number one seed is North Carolina, who looked really good this year. Uh, kind of a surprise pick. They lost a lot of talent to the draft. Um, but Kobe White, freshman, emerged as a star. Luke May, the returning forward, had a humongous year. Um, and they're always coached by Roy Williams. And they beat Duke twice this year. They almost swept them, but they lost a close ACC champion, or not championship, lost a close ACC semifinal. Um, this team is going to make it far. I, they don't have a super tough draw, I don't think. Um, but the team, eh, actually their draw is kind of hard. Um, just to get to the Sweet 16 should be easy. Meanwhile, the bottom half of that side of the bracket has Kentucky. Kentucky, I haven't watched the blue, the Wildcats a ton this year, but PJ Washington, big man, strong, physical, fast. He will be a problem for any team. and But Kentucky doesn't have an easy path. They have to face Wofford, potentially, who is the darlings of this tournament, and I'm sure a lot of them are going to pick... A lot of people are going to pick Wofford to go far. Meanwhile, Houston, who was really close... Uh, Houston is also in that eighth octant of the bracket. Um, Houston almost beat Michigan last year who would go on to make the national final. In that region also has Kansas and Auburn. Auburn, fresh off an SEC championship win, possibly underseeded, led by Bruce Pearl, who has plenty of experience, as we know. And also Kansas. Uh, the Jayhawks had a rough year this year, not winning the Big 12 for the first time in 15 years. But they'll bring their experience into the tournament, and I could totally see them going far, although I don't have them going far. And right now, I've got Kentucky beating North Carolina to advance to the Final Four. On the final part of the bracket, what I'm calling the Midwest, this actually might be the West. I might have gotten these mixed up. Regardless. Uh, Gonzaga is the one seed. Michigan is the two seed. I like Michigan more than Gonzaga, even though Gonzaga... Played really well this year and only had, I believe, two losses? Three losses. They seem like, almost like the Virginia of last year. They win games, but they're competent. They're, they have, they have like, one or two really good players, like Rui Hachimura, obviously. But I don't know if this team has the stamina to make it to a Final Four appearance. And Gonzaga has a history of kind of going out early, except for that time two years ago they made it to the national final. But uh, Michigan returns a strong team, although they lost three times to Michigan State, uh, and they didn't win their conference. But Michigan's still returning a lot of talent as well, and I think they'll make a good run in the tournament. Watch out for Nevada, the seventh seed, Caleb and Cody Martin have led a good squad, and Eric Musselman, their coach over in Nevada, uh, out of the Mountain West. They started the season, uh, I think, their first 14 games undefeated, um, and they are undefeated no more, um, but they still got a 7 seed, which is tough from a non-P5 conference, um, and have a chance possibly to face Michigan in the second round. I look for that as an impossible trendy upset pick. Also, probably the best game of the first round in this side of the region, Marquette and Murray State. Marquette 
led by Marcus Howard, who's had multiple huge games in Murray State, led by John Morant, the consensus lottery pick coming out of the OVC. Um, and everyone's excited to see him in the tournament. That might be probably the uh, fastest game of the tournament, I think. Uh, and so, and that'll be a fun one to watch. Uh, also, watch out for Buffalo, who started the season on fire, has since cooled off a little bit, but they are the sixth seed. Uh, and they will face possibly Texas Tech in the round of 32, which is definitely a winnable game. Right now, I've got Michigan beating Gonzaga to advance to the Final Four. And so I've got a Duke-Kentucky final, final Blue Bloods, and I've got Duke winning that. But that all might change. I don't know. I've got two more days to stew it over. Um, and I'm kind of kind of, kind of nervous about this. It's my, la- one of my, it's my last bracket in high school, and I want to make this one really good. So I will sit over that for another couple of days. Um, but I'm really excited about this tournament because... You've got a bunch of teams that possibly have a chance to make a deep run. Kansas State made it to the Elite Eight last year, and they beat Kansas this year and return a really good squad. Uh, also, Villanova just sitting there in the sixth seed, I think, will worry everyone's bracket. Um, just because you don't know what you're going to get with them. I mean, it, it really could could go either way. Also, some I said trendy upset pick earlier. Let me just run down what I think are the trendy upset picks. I think Yale over LSU is going to be a big one that a lot of people pick just because the Ivy League has a pretty decent history in the tournament. Also, Murray State over Marquette, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think since Buffalo isn't a super big name, I feel like whatever team comes out of Arizona State and St. Uh, John's is a team that a lot of people might pick uh, on the other side of the bracket. Georgia State, a lot of people remember them beating Baylor as a 14 seed, and they're a 14 seed again. Um, and they're playing Houston, a team out of the uh, American that not a, lot, not a lot of people are familiar with. Also, UC Irvine over Kansas State, um, but I hope not because I had the Wildcats. Um, also, Oregon over Wisconsin. Wisconsin, not a super quick team. Um, and Oregon's got, got a decent shot there. So a lot of madness potential. Brackets are going to lock on Thursday. A uh, little unpaid plug here, ESPN Tournament Challenge, always a great place to have your brackets. And if you have cable, if you have cable, download the March Madness Live app to watch all the games live for no extra charge. I have used this app for like six years now. Phenomenal way to watch your basketball. Um, so yeah, that's March Madness preview. We'll talk more about the games next week. You know, March Madness fits perfectly with our schedule. I mean, games happen Saturday, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Talk about them on Tuesday. Uh, so that that's our March Madness preview for 2019. Another major topic for today, Major League Baseball announced some rule changes this week, and we're going to talk about them. So... First, rule changes for the 2019 season. Some notable ones. There will be no trades after August or after July 31st. There will be no more August trade waivers, uh, which is interesting. Even though you're still going to have uh, regular waivers, no more trading uh, after July 31st, which 
really emphasizes the make your trades by the trade deadline, which means trade deadlines even or trade deadline will be even more fun. Um, and I think it's good that you can the more you can lock down on the reason you have a trade deadline in the first place, which is preventing teams that are not in contention from unloading all their assets to teams in contention. It's still it would be I agree with this this rule change and it's not a major one. Now, the home run derby comes with a one million dollar prize for the winner and two and a half million dollars of prize money. I like this incentive. Now, the home run derby is not a small task for those who participate in it. Uh, swinging a lot of times can be tiring, especially once you get to the last round. So, adding more of an incentive to do it, I think, will uh, add some excitement. And plus, you get to do that thing where, like, you give the players a giant check. And I'm always in favor of that kind of showmanship. <laughs> uh, the maximum number of mound visits per game will be reduced from six to five. Yeah, uh, I think the mound visits, it's something that we can all get used to. It's not a huge deal. Um, I'm totally okay with this change. I don't I don't think, I, I am a bit of a baseball purist, but I don't think this is one of the things to get riled up over. Uh, commercial breaks between innings are reduced to two minutes in length for all games. I think this is a pretty decent deal. I mean, there haven't been many times uh, in professional sports where you actually reduce the amount of time for commercial breaks. And I think I saw this statistic somewhere. Uh, for, for not just fact. For local games, commercial breaks are 2.05, so they'll be reduced to two minutes. But for national games, commercial breaks are 2.25, and they'll be reduced to two minutes, which is like a full 30-second commercial almost. So that's a pretty significant change, and I think it'll improve watchability for national games, although, like I've said before, baseball is more of a local sport. So I don't know how much that'll change, but... Uh, any any publicity is good publicity at this point, uh, almost for Major League Baseball, especially regarding commercial breaks. Um, and then the final change for this new season, the MLB and MLBPA will form a joint committee to discuss further issues and rule changes. Now for 2020, the standard roster size in regular season games and postseason games will increase from 25 to 26 players, but now the September 1st 40-man expansion will uh, expand to only a 28-player maximum. Now that's interesting because normally September is when you get to rest up for or uh, bring up a lot of guys and kind of experiment with that. But now that that isn't really a thing, that's going to be a little disappointing. We won't get to see as many new players come up, um, and that maybe will be a little more tiring for the players who have to be there. Uh, throughout the whole month of September. But I don't know how much one extra month does. Never played baseball uh, professionally. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much that'll change. Um, but that that's a significant thing, especially if you want to keep track of your personnel. Now, probably what I think is the... Uh, not this one. The next one. What I probably think is the biggest change out of all of these rule changes is this one coming up. Uh, a pitcher must face at least three batters per appearance unless he is removed due to injury or the half inning in which he is pitching ends before three batters have come to the plate. This is probably the first rule change out of all of these that is a direct change to how the game is played. Right, Preventing pitchers from facing fewer than three batters uh, unless the half inning ends. 
is a pretty significant change because it prevents a, a manager from allowing a pitcher to pitch an inning or pitch an out and then take him out and that taking them out. And you have to play your strategy differently because these special, these supreme special, special specialists will have to adapt or be out of the game. Um, and a lot of utility men have made their living that way. Um, and this is going to force pitchers to have to possibly uh, get more pitches or really work harder just to stay in the league now. I don't really like this change because, as opposed to many of these other changes, that is a direct change to, like I said, how the game is played. I mean, I don't really like those kind of restrictions. I could see this saving like maybe five minutes a game or so, because obviously the big issue here is pace of play. But I don't see this having a massive impact, and maybe it's a change in the culture that is what the MLB is aiming for. But, man, I, I think this change is a little too much. Um, we'll, we'll definitely see some significant strategy changes. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know about this, man. <laughs> And finally, uh, the f another rule change by 2020 is that position players are only eligible to pitch in extra innings or when a team is leading or trailing by seven or more runs. And then there's some other things about people designated as two-way players. Yeah, I don't like this either. Another change that's kind of changing what you can and can't do on the baseball diamond that relates to strategy. I think you should be able to do whatever you want. I mean, I get, like... Okay, so the main reason I'm, I'm, I'm guessing why they made this rule is because when you bring in position players, uh, they're worse at pitching, and so it's going to take longer to get outs. That's that's really all I can come up with. Uh, I think you should let position players pitch if they want to. It's better to watch. It's it, it's better for the league. Uh, and I, I get that the seven or more runs rule is still there, and the extra innings rule is still there. Um, and at this point, I mean, given that most of the situations happen anyway, it just kind of seems like an unnecessary formality uh, and not something that I would enforce if I were commissioner. Plus, I feel like if position players come in, people wouldn't be watching the game anyway. So I don't know if this just seems like a extraneous measure uh, or something that won't really be exercised super often, um, but... Nonetheless, they implemented it, and so it will happen over the next uh, over the next couple of years or so. Quick take. ESP, uh, courtesy Kyle Newport of Bleacher Report. A report that Peyton Manning and ESPN are meeting about a Monday night football job. So there's been a lot of uh, craziness happening with the Monday Night Football crew over this offseason, this NFL offseason so far. Jason Witten announced that he's unretiring and rejoining the Cowboys, which means that he will be leaving the broadcast booth. ESPN also announced that they have stopped the Boogermobile, so that little raving cart uh, that goes around on Monday Night Football will no longer be there obstructing people's views. And now Peyton Manning. Uh, I think Monday Night Football is definitely a salvageable, salvageable thing. I don't think Joe Tessitore is as bad as everyone likes. I mean, Tess adds a little dramatic flair, and right now it might seem a little weird that there's a dramatic flair on a otherwise subpar broadcast, but if they want to restore 
uh, Monday Night Football's former glory, you know, dress for success. Play like you, uh, I don't know the saying, but act as if you are there, right? Don't, don't, don't play down to your level. And I think Tess is a, is a great job, does a great job on Monday Night Football. Witten was just a little unprepared and a little dry, or he was prepared, but just a little dry, I felt like was the biggest thing. Um, and I feel like Peyton Manning could add a little more excitement. Not a Tony Romo excitement, but a little more. Uh, I think it would be an improvement. And I'm not sure if you need a three-person set. I feel like a two-person commentating booth is more intimate uh, and allows it just conversation to flow easier. I mean, the the Breen Van Gundy Jackson uh, set, is no matter what your opinions of it are, they've called the finals for years. Um, and, and clearly ESPN loves them. And I think the reason for that is Van Gundy and Jackson have spent enough time together that they riff on each other. And they are good friends, and they, they know how to step on each other's toes, or no, in a good sense, poke, each other, poke at each other a little bit. And I feel like unless you have that dynamic, a three-person booth is just crowded and kind of boring. Um, and I don't really know if you need Booger in there. I think Booger works better as a studio host. Um, and he does a good job as a studio host. But uh, I think having Peyton there with uh, Joe Tess would be an interesting thing. Uh, and it would be interesting to test out for a year and see what happens. I mean, reviews can't be worse than what we had uh, last year, after all. So I'm sticking with this uh, little 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 segment from last week. Off topic, I think it has a lot of potential, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So this week's off topic is with the coming of March Madness, everyone around the country is preparing to have TV marathons over the next week with 16 games on Thursday, 16 games on Friday, 8 games on Saturday, and 8 games on Sunday. And everyone will be watching games, many with friends, and I think it's apropos that I rank March Madness snacks. And I'm not talking about snacks like pizza or uh, burgers or, well, even wings. But I'm talking about snacks that are like finger food that you can eat a lot of. And you'll see what I mean when I get into this list. Um, but And by the way, these is, this is the ranking of my top. These are all things I like. Uh, but this is not worst to first. These are the five top things for me, and I like all of them, but here we go. Fifth are potato chips. Potato chips, solid snack, very solid snack. My only beef with potato chips is that they're very dry and salty, and one day, a few years ago, might have been last year actually, I watched an NBA Finals game or no, I watched the Western Conference Finals, and I add a lot of chips. And see, the problem with that is the next day I woke up and my throat was dry. Uh, it was a pain because when you eat chips and you keep eating them and you can't stop, that creates a situation where you, your mouth just hates it. Uh, and so that's why I think chips are number five. They're really good. But they have bad long. They're bad long term. Number four are veggie sticks. Very very underrated snack. A lot of people are turned off just because 
This is veggies. But they don't taste like veggies. They taste like chips. Or they have the flavor of chips. But they come in a nice package and they don't kill your mouth. And at least you can at least feel like they're healthy. Um, <laughs> I think veggie sticks are a very good go-to snack. Um, and you can eat as much as you want. Even though it's a lot of sodium. All these snacks are a lot of sodium. Well, except for one, which we'll get to later. But these are all relatively not so horrible for you. And I think that's why veggie sticks are number four. Number three are pretzels. And I'm not talking about soft pretzels. I'm talking about hard pretzels slash pretzel stick. Like, or mini pretzels slash pretzel sticks. Very good snack. Because they deliver crunch. They deliver flavor with the salt. And you can have a lot of them. And it's kind of salty, but it's not going to kill your mouth like the chips will. Very, very good snack. And they're very scalable, too. Pretzel sticks, a, a bag of pretzel sticks will last you for hours. Um, and so I think, I think those are a good, not super guilty snack. Number two, and the one that I really can't emphasize enough, and I struggled with number two versus number one. I think I have my list right. Number two is popcorn. Because popcorn, literally only downside to popcorn, unless you get the super buttery kind, literally the only downside to popcorn is that the kernels get stuck in your teeth. Everything else, if you don't get the super buttery popcorn, is really good because it's good, it has a nice texture, it's not too abrasive. Uh, things like crunching can get kind of maybe a little tired over time. Popcorn, nah. Also, you can get any, it's very, uh, you can find a lot of varieties of popcorn to m match your needs, to match your, your watching group's needs. Lot of flavor, depending on what you get. Uh, also, it's healthy. Er, uh, you can feel very unguilty eating popcorn, especially if you're getting the the skinny pop, uh, or like a smart food popcorn with like reduced fat. Very something that you can eat for hours and just feel great afterwards. I think popcorn is a like one A, but number one. Is reserved for probably my favorite dry snack, Chex Mix. Chex Mix, the thing that separates Chex Mix from everything else, you get something different in every bite, right? It has something for everyone. I I've ranked Chex Mix before, and I'm not going to do it here because I might save it for another time. But Chex Mix, no matter what, all of it is good. Some of the things are better than others, but all of the snacks in Chex Mix are good. All five of them. You got your corn Chex, your wheat Chex, your pretzel stick, or your pretzels your rye chips, and your breadsticks. All of those are quality snacks. So I believe that Chex Mix are the number one March Madness food because you can eat a lot of it and it's a lot of variety. Alright, that's my mantra about food. I could talk forever about food and maybe I'll do so another time. But in the meantime, Thank you so much for listening to The Wong Takes. Bip.ly slash The Wong Takes. Patreon.com slash The Wong Takes. The Wong Takes at gmail.com. Rate and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. Send questions, leave voicemails. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We are well over 30 minutes, and I will see you next week.